Ellen, thank you very much for being with us today. Of course, happy to be here. So, I have very quick question and prepared for you because I know that you have um, experience in emerging markets. So what distinguish founders in, I mean, in the U.S. from those in emerging markets? What are some key differences you notice in the mindsets between the startup founders in Silicon Valley uh, versus emerging markets? Yeah, great question. Um, and Brock, thanks again for, for having me. Um, I guess for the audience listening, I live here in Silicon Valley, so I'm based in California, um, but I've been focused on emerging markets for 20 years. Um, and so, you know, the work we do with Endeavor and our venture capital fund, Endeavor Catalyst, is all across Latin America, the Middle East, of course, Turkey, uh, Southeast Asia, across the African continent in emerging parts of Europe. And so emerging markets is really where I spend most of my time. And I would say that the main thing that distinguishes entrepreneurs in those markets um, from, let's say, Silicon Valley or another kind of very established, developed market entrepreneurial ecosystem is really the level of uh, resilience that you have to have to be successful. And, and what I mean is that there are challenges to building companies everywhere, right? Entrepreneurship is hard. Uh, but the, the challenges if you're building in Turkey or in Brazil or in Indonesia are oftentimes that much harder. And so entrepreneurs everywhere are smart. Uh, entrepreneurs everywhere have good ideas. But I think in emerging markets, they're particularly tenacious and kind of resilient when it comes to overcoming challenges. Can you explain also the origins of Endover Catalyst and how it fits to the broader Endover organization? What need uh, did it serve? Of course, yeah. Um, so I guess for, for those listening, Endeavor is a global organization that's been around now for more than 25 years. Uh, we're building the biggest community, we say, of, by, and for uh, high-impact entrepreneurs. Now, that is really primarily a network, right? An organization designed to kind of bring great entrepreneurs together, to connect them to mentors, to connect to talent, to connect to markets. Um, but for the first 15 years or so that we existed, we did not actually invest in the companies. Um, that changed in 2011, 2012, when a group of us, actually led by Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, who's on the board of Endeavor, um, set up a fund called Endeavor Catalyst, uh, specifically to invest in the Endeavor portfolio companies. Um, and so it's a unique fund because it, it doesn't go out to invest in the marketplace. You know, Endeavor is doing all the work to find and source and select, hopefully the very best companies from all these markets into the network. And then the Endeavor Catalyst Fund makes co-investments into those businesses. And so I'm sure we can talk a little bit more about the history. Um, but since we started doing it in 2012, uh, we've now made more than 300 investments uh, all across the world. And these are mostly Series A, Series B stage investments. And we've been very fortunate, in fact, um, 51 of the 300 companies, so about one out of six, has actually grown up to be a billion-dollar business. Um, and, you know, several of those have exited, done IPOs, been acquired. Um, actually, in Turkey, we've had some really good success stories we can talk about. Um, but that's really the, the role of Endeavor Catalyst is to be a complement to everything Endeavor's doing. And then the last unique feature is that the fund is actually owned by Endeavor, which is a nonprofit and so when we make profits from investing the fund, we donate them back to the Endeavor program 
in order to reinvest in building these ecosystems all around the world? I think the carry structure is completely different from the standard VC, I think. It is, yeah. For people who are interested, you know, most VCs charge a, a 2 and 20 right, a 2% management fee every year mm -hmm. and then a 20% carry. Um, we don't charge a management fee, um, so it's it's a better deal for our, our investors in that way. Um, but they give a, a higher carry, so that's the kind of carried interest uh, to Endeavor. It's We charge 50%, five zero. Um, but again, we donate 100% of that back to Endeavor. So that's the setup. How does the process of selecting the companies to invest in differ between Endeavor Catalyst and the Endeavor selection process? Is it different? No, good question. So really all the due diligence and all the selection, if you want to think about it that way, uh, is done by Endeavor. And so for those listening who've been through the Endeavor process, it is quite rigorous. Um, lots of interviews over months and months, hopefully that are also additive, right? Our goal is that our selection process also helps entrepreneurs with key challenges as they're growing. Um, but all of the real selection comes in the second opinion reviews, the local panel, the international selection panel that everybody has to go through. Um, and that's to become part of Endeavor. Once you're in, we actually make a commitment as the fund. We say, hey, the next time you go raise a round of equity, um, we effectively are already committed to it. We pre-commit to the round so long as we can help you find a professional fund to be the leader, right? And to price the round and set the terms for the round. Because we don't want to be a lead investor in the sense of pricing and negotiating terms with our own entrepreneurs, right? We want to be on the entrepreneur's side. And so the way the, the decision-making works for the Endeavor Catalyst Fund is it's actually really criteria-driven. It's, it's rules-based. It says, hey, if you are an Endeavor entrepreneur and you go raise a priced equity round of $5 million or more, so a, a typical kind of A, B round, and we can get a professional fund to be the leader. And being the leader means they write the term sheet, they probably sit on the board, they invest probably at least half the capital. Um, but as long as we can do those things, then we will automatically pitch in 10% of the round up to a couple million dollars. And so if you can imagine it then, our portfolio is big, 300 companies. In every one of those, we're writing kind of half a million, a million, up to a $2 million check on a round of five, 10 or $20 million. So as you mentioned, you have a huge KPI of uh, creating lots of unicorns. What is your magical want? And also I think <laughs> you, have, you, you have a lower failing rate. Uh, how do you keep that low uh, uh, percentage? Yeah, true. Um, so we have been very fortunate you know, when you look at failure rate by stages, again, st entrepreneurship is hard, right? So if you're investing at pre-seed and seed, you probably invest, you expect most of those companies to fail. Um, if you're in investing where we are at kind of A and B, you know, if you look over decades and across all geographies in the industry, failure rates are probably anywhere from, you know, high teens, low 20% up to maybe 30 or even 40%. Um, in our particular case, our failure rate's only 7%. And so people say, well, how do you do that? And, and I think a lot of it has to do with this double due diligence where Endeavor is doing due diligence on companies to join the network, frankly, much longer than a usual investment process would be, right? We spend time with companies for six, nine, 12, sometimes 15, 18, 24 months um, and really get to know them with a local team. I guess that's the other important part. We're a global fund. We're an international investor. 
but we have a local team in every market where we work. You know, so Barack, of course, we've spent time together in in Istanbul, where Asla and her team do an amazing job. Uh, but we have local teams on the ground in every single one of these countries. So altogether, it's about 600 people um, across uh, 63 different cities, right? And I think the fact that that level of due diligence is the first layer, and then the second layer really is in attracting a professional investor to invest, which we work hard on, right? We, we spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley, in London, in Singapore, um, in these international hubs of, of investors, talking about emerging markets, talking about our portfolio, talking about these companies to try to convince Sequoia or General Atlantic or whoever it is to actually take some bets in these markets because we think that makes a really big difference. Key founder qualities do you look for before investing in early stage startups or AB round startups? So how do you also um, um, select these kinds of startups? How do you understand these kinds of features that the founders have? Yeah, it's a great question. And I guess, Barack, to give you a full answer to your previous question, I don't think there is a magic wand. <laughs> I don't think there, we, we don't have any magic that we know about. Um, but we do really spend a lot of time on the people side of this, right? And so Endeavor looks at the founders, we look at the business, and we look at the timing in terms of it being the right inflection point to bring a founder into the network. Um, but on the founder in particular, or the founders or the team, you know, I think it's a combination. And if we were to put 100 Endeavor entrepreneurs in the room from all kinds of countries, and of course, from Turkey, it would be uh, people like, you know, Nevzad and Nelly from Yemek Sepeta or Sedar from Peak or Hande from Insider, right? If you put all these people in a room, but then take five from Indonesia and five from Mexico, and, you know, we just opened up in Pakistan, right? The first Endeavor companies and entrepreneurs there. The thing these founders have in common is really a, a radical level of self-belief, right? So believing in the impossible, like they truly believe they can do things that the rest of the world says, that's impossible, you'll, you'll never do it, or that's crazy, right? The, the founder of Endeavor, co-founder and CEO, Linda Rotenberg, my boss, uh, wrote a book a few years ago called Crazy is a Compliment. Uh, but I think that's actually really true. All, all of these founders have a thing in common where they've been called crazy over and over because they believe in impossible things. Um, but they also have a real level of, uh, it, it, it's almost, it's confidence mixed with humility, but the humility I think comes from a, a deep intellectual curiosity where they actually want to know the answer. And so when you meet a founder who is very confident, but knows all the answers and doesn't listen to anybody, that person probably doesn't fit with Endeavor very well. But the person who has a lot of confidence and a lot of self-belief and really thinks they can change the world and also is really deeply intellectually curious about the answers to questions, they're going to be the types of founders, I think, that grow up to, to really benefit from learning from the people around them and, and from mentorship and from the types of compounding of human networks that Endeavor is all about. You have seen many countries and... I know that, I mean, many governments and many countries wants to replicate the success of Silicon Valley and copying its in infrastructure and some of startup ecosystem elements. But uh, with your extensive global, global experience observing different entrepreneur hubs, what do you believe uh, are the secrets of uh, building healthy long-term 
startup ecosystems uh, like Silicon Valley? I mean, is it possible to copy the mindset or what do you think about uh, especially the government's uh, uh, efforts, different yeah. uh, geographies? So this is kind of the question everybody wants to ask everywhere you go in the world. You know, can we be Silicon Valley? Can you copy uh, and paste Silicon Valley? And my answer is yes and no. And, and what I mean is, in the truest sense, you can't just copy and paste what happened. Um, but I think you can learn a lot and take some of the elements or the ingredients of what make these different startup ecosystems work and bring them to your own. But the framework that we use at Endeavor and that I think is an important one to think about here is really, you know, this ecosystem building takes place in generations of entrepreneurs, right? And in some ways, Silicon Valley is already on generation number, I don't know, 11 or 12, right? We've been doing this for a long time. Where I think you can learn the most if you're a young kind of learning, let's take Pakistan where we just started, right? It, it's kind of the first generation of, of high growth tech entrepreneurship and venture capital in the country. Um, I think you can learn more by studying Jakarta or studying Istanbul or studying Sao Paulo where they're on kind of the second or third generation than by studying Silicon Valley. Because in a sense, Silicon Valley is kind of too far away from your reality. And, you know, this is where Endeavor's concept of the multiplier effect really takes shape because the first generation of successful entrepreneurs, it's not just about building a company and having an exit. You know, of course, Yemek Sepeta is a great example of an exit, but in many ways, it's what Nevzat and Meli and so many of the other employees who had worked there did after, right, becoming angel investors, supporting the ecosystem, mentoring the next generation, that's the multiplier effect. And that's actually how you get the ecosystem built. And so, you know, to the people from the governments, you have to ask them to be patient. The government can't create this by themselves, right? As, as an actor, it does take time and it has to be great founders. Now the government can help create the right incentives or the right structures to encourage people to start companies, to encourage folks to take risk, um, to encourage angel investors and other early stage investors to invest but they can just kind of create some of the conditions. Ultimately, the founders themselves have to build things. Um, and I do think it takes time because if you think about these generations, you know, you, you hear this expression a lot, but I think on average, every overnight success story that appears in the newspaper headline has taken about 10 or 15 years to build, right? And I think that's really true in, in entrepreneurship. I think this is Jeff Bezos' uh, quotation, quote, I think. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. Right. it's a good one. Yes. And um, vice versa, what can Silicon Valley can learn from the emerging market entrepreneurs? Oh, a lot, I think. Um, you know, we're always very surprised at Endeavor through our office here that I opened about a decade ago. Uh, we bring mentors and folks from Silicon Valley, oftentimes on their first trip to South America or to Southeast Asia or, or to the Middle East. And I think they're oftentimes quite shocked by the level of talent and the, the quality of the founders and, and, you know, where these ecosystems are. Um, I'm a little bit biased given what I work on, but I truly believe that most of the growth in the, in the world economy over the next 20 or 30 years is going to come from emerging markets. And so it's very silly for people to sit here in Palo Alto 
and think this is really the center of the universe, right? There is something special about Silicon Valley, even still today, um, but there's so much to learn from, from the rest of the world. And basically every single person Endeavor has been able to expose to what's happening in emerging markets that come back saying, wow, I had, I had no idea so much was happening everywhere else. What are the some underappreciated startup hubs or ecosystem that people should be paying more attention to? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, maybe I'll, I'll take it region by region, given the way Endeavor thinks Perfect. about these things. Um, you know, obviously, if you look at Latin America, uh, Brazil is no longer a secret, right? You know, after kind of the US, Europe, China, India, I, I arguably think Brazil's probably one of the most developed venture ecosystems in the world today, where you're starting to have multiple, you know, US publicly listed companies, um, You look at, you know, Mercado Libre is almost a hundred billion dollar business, obviously came out of Argentina. Lots of the growth uh, is because of the market size in Brazil. Uh, Nubank is almost a $40 billion dollar company now. So Brazil is no longer a secret. Um, but I do think that Mexico is still pretty overlooked um, with some real opportunity. And then we do a lot of investing and a lot of supporting of founders in um, Colombia, Argentina, and Chile in particular. And I think if you go to Bogota or Medellin, you go to Buenos Aires, uh, you go to Santiago and Chile, there's, there really are a lot of things happening there that I think are still somewhat overlooked in a, in a global context. Um, if you go across to the work endeavors doing uh, in the Middle East, I still think Turkey is, I think Istanbul is a somewhat undervalued place, right? The, the level of talent and the level of entrepreneurial opportunity. Now, of course, the challenges are many, um, but I think it, it's not as recognized globally as it could be for the potential there. I mean, when I look at our own investing, uh, from our first five years of investing as a fund, Turkey was our number one market uh, and produced out of six investments, we had five exits, you know, Peak Games, you know, except it's a, uh, It, it was it was real easy co uh, air ties foriba i don't know it was a great market for us we made like 11x cash on cash return investing in turkey right so i still believe it's an overlooked place um, but i'm also spending a lot of time uh, in the middle east particularly on egypt uh, saudi and the uae i think those are markets that have a lot of potential um, i think in On the African continent, it's still a long way to go, but there's great hubs of talent, not only in Joburg and Cape Town, but in Nairobi and, and Lagos. And if you go across to the Asian markets, obviously China and India get most of the attention, but I think there's a lot of stuff happening in Pakistan and Bangladesh that we should watch out for. And Endeavor sees quite a bit in both um, Vietnam and the Philippines. And so Southeast Asia is not only an Indonesia story. Of course, there's lots happening in Indonesia and like Brazil, it's getting a lot of attention. Uh, you know, globally for us, Brazil and Indonesia are the two most active markets. So those ones aren't secrets anymore. Um, but I say, if you spend some time in, in Vietnam or, or even in the Philippines, uh, there's a lot happening there as well. If you could change one thing about the global startup ecosystem, what would it be? Oh, interesting. Um, I wish there was a slightly more efficient market for matching capital with opportunities. And what I mean is that I do, we really do see these situations where great teams with great opportunities in front of them 
who just need, you know, let's say a, a series B stage of funding, but they happen to be in Karachi, right? Uh, they can't get the capital that they need at that, at that stage of growth because the local market doesn't support it yet. It's not quite grown up yet to the general Atlantic, you know, series C and D stage. So I guess it would be if I had a magic wand for the, the late venture rounds, right? Those kind of B into C rounds, particularly for the markets that are more capital starved. So I do think those companies ultimately find money in Brazil or Indonesia or India, as we were just talking about. Um, but I think in the more frontier markets, there's still an inefficiency there, right? There, there's great teams with real opportunity that can't get access to the capital. And, you know, we're working on that. <laughs> but if, that's, if there's one thing I could change, it'd probably be that. So you are working in the IPO or uh, secondary markets? What are you working on it? Well, so look, the we think we think about all the stages of financing, um, mm. and of course, I think the earlier you go, the more local the game is, and the later you go, the more global it is. Um, although there are lots of in, interesting models now investing globally at early stage, right? Barack, you're you're running mm. a fund that does this. This has been 500 startups thesis for a long time. Uh, I'm I'm part of an early stage fund called Alter Global that has the same thesis that you can invest at pre-seed and seed kind of very early. Um, but when I think about kind of where to work on pre-seed and seed uh, and even into A, I think is mostly going to be about local venture ecosystem development, right? We think a lot about this at Coffin Fellows or I'm on the board of kind of how do you get a venture ecosystem to kind of have enough local players in it and enough competition to be a healthy one at the kind of pre-seed to A stage. Um, at the very other end of the spectrum, where Endeavor is doing a lot of work now on IPO readiness and getting companies ready to go public, uh, that's really a global game. You know, we're partnering with people like NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, and we're trying to help advise the public markets in Saudi Arabia and Brazil and Indonesia and even the UAE that want to be able to take companies public. Um, you know, we, we were lucky enough, we had 10 companies in our portfolio do IPOs in 2021 and 2022. It was a very active window. Um, we've had none in the last kind of 12 to 18 months, but this will happen again, right? We probably have a dozen companies that will go public and most of them in the United States, even though they're based in Latin America and Asia and Africa and other places um, in the next time that the, the window is really open. But I guess what I was identifying in that question is along this whole spectrum of financing, I think it is kind of in the middle where there's still a, a real opportunity. You know, the local funds try to flex up. You see the bigger, more successful local venture funds raising opportunity funds and trying to flex up into that space. Um, the global players like a General Atlantic, you know, try to, to stretch down. Uh, but there's there's still a gap there, I think, um, in some of our markets. Well, what would you advise uh, to the founders, especially fundraising in the current climate? I mean, so saying that you have uh, two IPOs in the earlier years, but it was good old days. Uh, the uh, macroeconomics has been changed. So what is your advice to the founders, especially in this uh, fundraising uh, climate? Yeah, look, um, some advice is the same as it's always been. Uh, which is, I do think fundraising, especially all the way up through Series B, is a people business, right? It, it really is about the relationships you build and the quality of people you want around the company. 
uh, not only in your boardroom with you, but you know, as advisors and, and on your cap table. And so treat it as such and build relationships, <laughs> right? And you know, we always say this, this old adage about investors invest in lines, not dots, but it's very true, right? So the, the days of like thinking, oh, hey, I'm going to show up at SFO in Silicon Valley and I'm going to make the greatest pitch of my life and get the check. It doesn't really work like that if it's your first time you ever met that particular investor, right? So especially as you get into Series A and Series B, thinking of it as a, a real process where you're going to build relationships over 6, 12, 18 months, you're going to meet investors when you're not raising money. And you're going to say, hey, do you mind if I stay in touch? And then every single month or quarter, you're going to say, this was our plan for the month or the quarter. Uh, and here's how we did, right? And and the investor can then start to make enough data points or enough dots to have a line of understanding where you're going, right? And so the kind of timeless advice to founders is treat it like a relationship business, make it about people, make it an ongoing process, um, and really think about, you know, this is this is a two-way street, right? You obviously, you're trying to find investors who want to invest in you, but you want to also find the best investors that actually are the right fit for your company. Um, in terms of what's different right now today, so Barack, we're doing this in you know, mid-February, 2024. My best advice to people who grew up in the entrepreneurship world in maybe the last three to five years is just try to erase any memory you have of 2021 and pretend it never happened. Because um, I don't think it's it's a time period we're going back to anytime soon, or even one that we should try to go back to. Um, I do think the fundraising market is better right now than it has been for the last four to six quarters. Um, so in our own data, we can see we're making more investments last quarter and this quarter than we did at the same time a year ago. Um, so I do think money is starting to flow again. Um, but I think it's it's going to the very best companies who have the very best kind of most disciplined plan about how they're going to build something really big, but that is going to also become a, a profitable company, right? And you hear all this stuff about growth versus profitability. It's a spectrum, right? It's a pendulum that kind of swings back and forth in, in investor sentiment. Uh, but you have to be building over the long term for both. And I think founders, the best founders know that. What are the common fundraising mistakes, especially you see uh, founders make in this process? Yeah, so, you know, most mistakes just come from inexperience. And I always say it's not a fair playing field because investors do this for a living and entrepreneurs don't, right? The thing they do for a living is building their company. And so the biggest mistakes are um, just going out too early, getting too excited and going to do five pitches before you've actually thought of a process and set up an investor map, right? A whole bunch of the time investment should happen before you actually go and make a formal pitch, uh, you know, in terms of mapping out who the right investors are, uh, mapping out your best kind of connections to them, you know, getting to know other founders who've worked with those companies, doing some amount of um, reverse due diligence, right, of learning about funds ahead of time. So the biggest mistakes I think are rushing out to pitch without doing homework ahead of time, uh, not personalizing things, right? So cold, cold email, just blasting the same note to 50 investors, that doesn't work, right? In the amount of noise that that's out there. Um, and I guess also planning travel 
without booking meetings ahead of time. I, I have, I still see people do this. They call from the airport. Okay, I'm here at SFO. I need to meet investors. <laughs> like, well, that's going to be very hard to do. Let's work for six weeks on planning a, a trip somewhere. And these days, I will say, Barack, many, many investors really do want to take first conversations like this over, over Zoom or over a digital platform. And then they are happy to meet in person. Um, but gone are the days where you had to fly to London or Singapore or Silicon Valley for the first meeting. I think you can build a relationship ahead of time from wherever you are in the world. Especially in the investor meetings, what are your red flags? What you turns you off with the founders or with the investment opportunity? Are there any specific um, situation, status or something else? Yeah, I think... Um, when you're actually having that conversation, and this goes not just for me, I guess, but I've sat in on hundreds of different investors kind of looking at companies and asking questions. And you can see the things that turn investors off are when founders are not listening, right? They're so, they're so committed to making the pitch and saying what they practiced that they don't actually engage in a conversation. I think the best investor pitches are conversations, right? The investor asks smart questions. The founder shows, demonstrates knowledge that they've thought about those questions. They admit when they don't know the answer to things, they're willing to be humble. They're willing to say, that's a really good one we haven't thought about. So, you know, not listening, trying to pitch no matter what, uh, using up all the time on the pitch, right? So if you get 25 minutes together and you know, you make it to the end of the slide, but you haven't let the investor ask anything or say anything. How are you going to build a relationship in that conversation? So those are some of the things I think with practice um, founders can avoid. You mentioned that you have a 7% failing rate. Uh, what did you learn about these failures and uh, what are the uh, common uh, failures uh, in your portfolio, especially uh, in recent years? Yeah. And look, I, I'm, I'm humble enough to admit our failure rate might go up over time, right? We've been doing this for 11 years. Um, we've been lucky enough to have 24 exits. I mentioned 10 IPOs. You know, we've we've done well, but most of our companies are still going and growing, right? And so I, I expect as the world evolves, you know, more of them may, may fail in the coming years. Um, and we've learned a lot from some fa failures already. Um, but I would say that the the number one thing in common is that in the end, most companies fail for some type of human dynamic, right? Co-founder conflict, board founder conflict, um, founder team conflict, something to do with the people component usually, right? Because I think when things are really clicking and teams are working well together, that's where you get the famous startup pivot, right? You, you, you figure something out, you keep evolving, you keep growing. And it's when the human element kind of breaks down and people are fighting, then you lose your ability to innovate and pivot and change. Um, obviously, ultimately, companies fail because they run out of money. Um, and so people make these charts of all the reasons they failed. Well, the real reason they failed is they didn't generate any revenue and they ran out of cash, right? Um, so I have seen some cases where true like financial mismanagement meant that a good team actually just, you know, drove off a cliff and 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 ran out of money. Um, but that's usually not the case. Usually there's something that happens in the the human side of things. Additionally, you mentioned uh, that you have great uh, startups, uh, success stories. Uh, 
Um, should you name some of them in the in this region, uh, broadly region? Let's start with Turkey. How did you select, for example, Yemeksepeti? What was the story behind? Uh, I think it was one of the earliest ones. It was, yeah. So for for people in Turkey, people may know the story. Um, we set up an office for Endeavor in Turkey, two thousand and six, two thousand seven timeframe, and. Uh, Nevzat and Meli and the third co-founder, Jem, applied to the Endeavor program, I think within that first kind of six months or a year that we were operating. And the business at that point was already about five or six years old. I think they had started it in 2001. Um, but, you know, it, it like any startup, it, it was a labor of love. Like the early years were not easy and it was very hard. And it's hard to imagine from where we sit today, but there really wasn't that much tech even possible in the early days, right? So for those who don't know, Yemek Sepeta is a food delivery business. Um, and I think in the early orders, it was like, you know, they were faxing the order to the restaurant and calling on the phone. You know, there, it wasn't nearly as software driven as it, it can be today. Um, but what we saw when we selected, in, as Endeavor, when we selected uh, Nevzad and Meli and Jem, was really just a tremendous team, right? A, a great set of founders who really were going to build something big. And, you know, to be honest, I think if you really could go in a time machine back to that moment, we didn't know if food delivery was going to be a big business, right? This is way before DoorDash or Uber Eats or, you know, Delivery Hero or any of these businesses came to be. But we knew the team was special. And I think that was kind of why we made the bet. And it's a similar story if you look at Sidar and the guys at Peak, you had who obviously had a great exit to, to Zynga, um, or you look at Honda and the team at Insider when they were building early on. I think, you know, we look at, is the business a platform for growth? Is it, is an, is it in an interesting space? But we don't assume we know the answer, right? I think that's a mistake sometimes founders and even investors make is, well, what's the total addressable market? I think a lot of times things that are, really interesting, might have a small TAM today, but they're on the path to building something that's actually going to grow a lot over time. Um, but the thing that I think in all those cases, you know, I, I lived in Istanbul for three months, I think, back in 07, when we were selecting some of those first companies. Um, I distinctly remember writing the the business case study, like the profile for Endeavor for Yemek Sepeta to be selected. It It was not obvious right it was a bet it was making a bet on on the founders so are there any cultural differences across regional um regions impact uh especially investing or supporting the founders how do you mentor for example mount uh, all these entrepreneurs yeah good question so obviously there are cultural differences um regional differences you know language all, all kinds of things um which is why Endeavor has always taken this approach that we call kind of locally owned and operated to having a, a chapter or an affiliate based in every country, right? So we think this kind of locally owned and operated with access to a global network of, of mentorship and knowledge and know-how around company building and scaling and how to really build scale-ups is the, is the most powerful combination. But we don't presume or assume that we know the answers in Silicon Valley or New York City, right? We rely very heavily on our local teams in markets to really help us know and navigate. Um, you know, I took my first trip a couple months ago uh, to Bucharest, right? I was in Romania for the very first time. 
I will very readily admit, I don't know a lot about Romania, right? I grew up in California. I lived in Latin America. Uh, I speak Spanish and a little bit of Portuguese and maybe, you know, 50 words of Turkish now. Um, but Romania was a new market to me. So I really leaned on our amazing local team there to even learn, you know, the right local customs to to interact in a meeting and what to do and how to do things so that you're respectful and you do things in the right way. But Barack, the thing I'll say that is really fascinating to me in almost 20 years of doing this, when you're working with founders and entrepreneurs, the world is much more alike than it is different. And I think maybe you find the same thing investing in all these different places, but it is so similar when you put a bunch of Endeavor entrepreneurs in a room. And yes, they're different cultures and different religions, and they speak different languages at home with their family. But man, it is amazing to see the common language that they speak together uh, and kind of how that all manifests in, in this global network. I mean, you have been uh, in the VC world for many years now. Uh, I think your background is not a venture capital background or capitalist background. No. How has your personal approach to investing evolved over the course of your career? Yeah, it's a good question. And I guess I, I can bring up my, my college roommates. I went to undergrad at Princeton. Uh, at least one of my roommates went on to be a Wall Street banker. Uh, you know, he was the econ finance guy where I studied like languages and literature. Uh, and, you know, frankly, he finds it hilarious that I now run a $500 million venture capital platform because he's like, you were the German literature major, right? Um, but I, I do think it is informative that there is no single path into venture um, as a business. And that honestly, early stage investing is a people business, right? And and I've said that before, but that's something I think has really been true from the beginning. You know, maybe I'll share this story, Barack. When Endeavor decided to start a fund, to start Endeavor Catalyst, there was a lot of discussion at the board level, I think, around hiring a professional fund manager. Um, you know, do we need to bring in a, a professional to come in and run the fund? And in the end, I was very lucky and fortunate. I had been working at Endeavor already for about five or six years, and I'd been running selection and, and the entrepreneur experience, the servicing platform. I'd come and set up this office in California, but I was not a venture capitalist, right? I didn't have that, that background or training. And Endeavor took a bet on me, right? And they said, hey, we're going to actually take someone from the inside who has Endeavor DNA, right? Endeavor has this teal colored logo, you know, we're Endeavor teal all over the world. So I, I always say, you know, you, you, if you cut me, I, I bleed Endeavor teal. Um, but we were going to take someone like that and essentially help teach them the venture business. And so Endeavor sponsored me at the time. Um, our president at the time was a guy called Fernando Fabre. He had just completed a fellowship called the Kaufman Fellows Program. Uh, he'd been the first person from Endeavor to go through it. And he sponsored me to do it. You know, and I did it in 2011, 12, and 13 as we were setting up the fund. And I learned a heck of a lot. It's like an executive MBA for, for venture capital, right? I learned so much about the venture business. And I do think this is an apprenticeship business. So if you can kind of learn by doing as you go, and I've had amazing mentors and just phenomenal access to people on Endeavor's board, like Nick Byme at Venrock, Jason Green, who's now retired at Emergence. I mentioned Reed Hoffman. Um, Nico Sakazi from Kazakh, who's built kind of one of the really true preeminent kind of first generation venture funds in, in LATAM after building Mercado Libre, um, which was, of course, a, an Endeavor company and a big success story. So I think 
for me, I've really been lucky to kind of learn this business as we go. Um, and to your the part of your question about, you know, what's changed over time, um, I just have a deep humility about the business, right? Like, we don't know the answers. Um, we're doing our very best to identify the best talent and place bets uh, and really play for the long term. Uh, that's probably another thing that, you know, now in my 40s feels you know, much more real. I, I had a lot of, um, you know, in, in, in eagerness and intensity earlier in my career to make things happen fast, right? And now I, I am a little bit better at thinking about the long game, playing the long term, realizing this stuff takes a very long time. Um, it's that Bill Gates quote, actually, that uh, says, you know, human beings overestimate what we can do in one year, but we underestimate what we can do in 10 I try to ask myself and my teams a lot about kind of, okay, what are we really building for over the next five or 10 years, right? And if you focus on that, it's it's really amazing what you can achieve. Uh, do you have mentors and which kinds of uh, regularly, uh, or I mean, which kinds of time frame do you get mentorship from your coaches and mentors? For, for sure. sure, lots and lots of personal mentors. Um, but it's interesting, right? I don't think of it as much. Some people have a very rigid approach to this or a very defined approach of, I'm going to build a personal advisory board and ask everybody for one hour a month. I haven't had that type of approach, right? Mine has been really, I guess, in line with what I was describing around investing in relationships. You know, Jason Green, who I mentioned, has been a really important mentor to me. He was on the Endeavor board for 20 years plus. He was on the board of the Kauffman Fellows. Um, in fact, the reason I'm on the board of the Kaufman Fellows now was Jason ultimately asked me to join before he stepped off and retired. You know, I think we've had these really kind of real conversations, you know, probably two, three times a year um, when it came up, when it was important, when we were in the same city. So it wasn't on a fixed schedule, but it was just a relationship, right, that, that you invest in. Um, I've had similarly great relationships with a bunch of people on Endeavor's board, with a bunch of Endeavor entrepreneurs. Um, you know, I, I think mentorship can actually take many forms or many flavors. Uh, and it really is about just being real and being a real human being and interacting with folks. And it's a two-way street. You know, I, I think a lot of the people, I think about the Endeavor entrepreneurs, I think a lot of the people I consider mentors and friends probably think about me in the same way, right? As maybe being a little bit of their mentor. And so I think it can actually flow like that in, in both directions what kinds of books uh, podcasts or movies uh, lately you have seen and can recommend especially the entrepreneurs <laughs> let's see um i do think that what harry stebbings has built over time with 20 minute vc is just a phenomenal library like a collection of hey you want an insight into how does um you know, Doug Leone think into how Bill Gurley thinks into how Marcos Galperi and the guy who built Mercado Libre thinks like what Harry's done is created a, a way you can just go find an episode. Obviously, he uses kind of a formula to his podcast, but you can go really hear from all kinds of people. I think that's a great library for people approaching this in for the first time. These days, there's really kind of an explosion of podcasts uh, of people with, you know, focusing on different ecosystems, different industries. You know, I try to listen a lot. I do think if there's one I'd recommend, I think the guys from Acquired do a really interesting job. 
of these long form business case breakdowns that they've done a ton of research on. It's a totally different format because oftentimes they stretch to two, three, four hours long. Um, but I think they get really deep into how companies got built, which key de decisions got made. Uh, I think they're really useful for entrepreneurs because, you know, if there's one thing I observe in all of our founders, and of course, Endeavor companies grow up to be much bigger, right? So we're not really talking about startups. We're talking about the founders who can make that transition from starting something to scaling something to then running a very big organization, you know, with thousands of employees. And there is this thing about, I, I mentioned the intellectual curiosity, but there's also this thing about the quality of your decision-making and can you really improve the quality of decision-making over time as an individual, as a CEO, but as a group. And Acquired, I think, is a good one where you can, it's like reading case studies kind of, but in a more fun entertainment type format of getting to listen to it. Um, in terms of books, you know, I think... Um, Brad Feld wrote a fantastic book 10, 15 years ago that still is a, a, a really, really good one uh, that's worth reading about venture. Uh, I think Scott Kapoor's new book, uh, Secrets of Sand Hill Road, is, is a really good read. Yeah, and there, and there are actually quite a few out there that, that, are, that are good. The most recent one I liked in the last couple of years was um, Sebastian Malaby's uh, The Power Law, uh, which goes deep into kind of the history of Silicon Valley, but uses it to illustrate why venture is about these sort of outliers and outsized um, outcomes. And, you know, he does a really good job with it and, and brings it to life. I thought that was a good one too. Uh, could go back, travel back in time and give your, especially, for example, new graduate of yourself, one piece <laughs> of advice, what would it be? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I've, I've answered versions of that question, but not exactly that, that one. Maybe this is an unexpected answer, Barack, but I would actually say if I could go back and I'm 43 now, right? So if I could go back to 18-year-old me or 22-year-old me, um, I would probably say spend a little bit more time and energy on um, people and on your, your most real friendships and intimate friendships and even thinking about you know, who you might want to marry and what kind of partnership you want to have and a little less time obsessing around your professional goals and achievements. I think I was raised in Silicon Valley in California. Um, this is a very like achievement driven culture. It's all about your career and what you're going to build. That's important. But ultimately, I think life satisfaction and kind of happiness comes from, you know, the, the quality of these closer relationships. And so if I could convince my 18 or 22 year old self to hear that message. Uh, that's probably what I would try to share. And uh, I would like to ask the last question. Uh, sure. Which places uh, you have on your travel bucket list to go back? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is a fun question. Um, you know, I have, we have two little kids now. I have a four and a half year old uh, daughter. And so we spend a lot of time looking at the world map and, you know, learning the flags of the world and talking about places. But uh, there are a few that I've been to before that I will definitely go back, right? I, I love Buenos Aires, Argentina and Patagonia. Um, I lived there for a chapter of my life. It's a special place for me. Um, I love Cape Town in South Africa. I'm going to have a chance actually to be there Um next month, uh, which will be really fun to, to obviously great startup ecosystem, but also just amazing place. 
Um, I think I really like the cities and places in the world where what what people built and what nature built like interact in this very interesting way. Uh, and so Cape Town is a city like that. Istanbul is actually a city like that. I, I love Istanbul. Um, so it's Hong Kong. So is Sydney, you know, Rio. There's there's really some great, great places in the world. Um, but I would say, you know, overall, what I'm excited for in the next 20 years is actually traveling um, with our kids and with our family and, and introducing them to some of the places I really love, right? Like Istanbul, like uh, Cape Town, like Buenos Aires, um, and these different spots in the world. Thank you very much. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks, Barack.